you're listening to Nick Holt Live on Spotify, Substack, and iHeartRadio. The Nick Holt Podcast. I Gigi Foster, welcome back to Brisbane. Thank you very much, Nick. It's a pleasure to be on the show again and enjoy your beautiful sunny weather. Yeah. Well, what um, You've come up here for a conference. Well, actually, I have come for a pandemic management discussion that has just been put on last night by the Brisbane Dialogues, which is, I think, Australia's first organization explicitly dedicated to promoting high-level discourse about big issues with the public um, and across the aisles. So on the stage last night at the Princess Theatre in Wollongaba, we had myself and three other people, uh, plus a moderator, all of whom had quite distinct views about uh, COVID policy and the road ahead for managing the next pandemic as well. So that was really, uh, it was a great discussion. I found it um, just relieving to be able to have that kind of platform and be able to have a discourse where it was respectful. It wasn't about playing gotcha. It wasn't about, Mm. you know, scoring debaters points. Um, And the theater was almost packed. I think we had, I think Murray said something like 280 people. Murray Hancock is the organizer. And uh, lots of discussion afterwards as well. So that was, I think that was really important for Queensland. And I think we need more of that kind of thing throughout the country, really, to reckon with the last two and a half years of of policymaking and a lot of cancellation, a lot of denigration and bullying and censorship of alternative points of view. So this was an antidote to that, at least for one evening. So I really appreciated Mm. that opportunity. What were some of the discussions we spoke earlier about the idea that some people are now starting to have different views mm-hmm. and attitudes towards lockdown than they had during lockdown. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I opened last night with uh, five minutes of remarks around the crowd phenomenon, basically talking about all the things that we forgot during the COVID period. We, for example, forgot about the role of natural immunity in fighting infections. We forgot that uh, when you lock down whole healthy populations, you inflict huge damage, and that in fact, we never planned to do that in our pre-2020 pandemic management plans. That was never part of the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, We forgot that you can do things other than vaccinate to try to fight respiratory pathogens and other pathogens like keeping yourself healthy and having prophylaxis, uh, prophylaxic care and also obviously uh, treating early. Um, we forgot a lot of things. PCR tests aren't diagnostic. Masks don't generally work to prevent transmission of viruses. You know, lots of things that just went out the window. And you have to ask yourself when you you know, list off all of those items that were forgotten, how could we have had that collective social amnesia about all these things that were directly relevant to setting in place sane policies to fight COVID? Mm. And my explanation, and it's consistent with some of the sociological literature, uh, not just recent, but actually really from long past, from a couple of centuries ago, is that what we have witnessed during this time is the formation of a crowd, of a mob, of crowd thinking. And it's easy to say that and you think, oh, yeah, well, whatever, there was just some group think. No, but it is a very big deal. It's a very special kind of human group that develops at particular times in history, usually when there's a great emotional wave of some sort, Fear often uh, is, the, is the instigator initially. And in the case of COVID, it was fear that was fanned through mass media, social media all around the world, and then propagated even further by governments around the world, including Australia's, that 
essentially formed people, kind of packed them into this group that was obsessed about one thing. That's what a crowd is. There's one obsession, and everything else that normally matters gets swept under the rug or pushed aside or rationalized away. And so what we're dealing with now in the aftermath of that crowd formation, which happened very quickly in a couple few months at the beginning of 2020, is the gradual waking up of individuals who were part of that crowd one by one uh, you know, on individual levels for individual reasons, often just in a conversation you'll have over coffee. So the work that I'm now doing is really oriented. It's, it's hard yakka because it's oriented I towards, bet. you know, person by person opening the eyes and, and meeting them where they are now and trying to be there as a soft place to fall and feel safe, really, with the recognition that, oh, my goodness, maybe I was complicit in the worst policy mismanagement of our generation. Maybe I was complicit in policies that hurt my children, that hurt my parents, that hurt me, that held the country back. Um, I was complicit in cowardice. I, uh, I went along with things that were wrong uh, morally. And that's a really, you know, big psychological shock for people. And so when they wake up, I do expect, you know, and I've seen that a bit. People just get very disoriented. They get, they get scared. They're, they're, they have all sorts of emotions running through them. And they really need to be kind of held and helped through that. Very scary. Because to me, it's scarier than any of the mandates that they put through because if you've all of a sudden you come towards this you come into this realization your sense of reality is shattered on a number of levels yes exactly and it's the it's the pillars that uphold your thinking about everything and and during covid people who are in the crowd they don't see it right they're not aware that what has actually been uh, going on is they have been rationalizing the logic that has been presented to them or that the facts, the morality, the truth that has pre been presented by the crowd. Their brain has turned into a rationalization machine. And it's, yeah. of course, our brains are usually rationalization machines, but, but we try as scientists, at least when we are really trying to get to the bottom of something or make good policy to, you know, take that part out and, and try to be as objective as possible and look at all the data and test our models against data and consider alternatives, all that stuff that we do. None of that really happened during this period. And it was very much, you know, the rationalization part became the only part of the minds of people who were captured by this crowd dynamic. And so they were no longer truly able to think critically about evidence that was in front of them. And I had this experience so many times in the last two and a half years. You'd have a conversation with someone whose intelligence you respected, who was well-educated, who in previous pre-COVID times seemed to be pretty sensible, you know, mm. generally following kind of classic scientific methods or enlightenment principles to the extent that you can pick that. Um, and I would just present them with just incontrovertible facts about everything from the actual IFR of COVID to evidence on mask efficacy or evidence on vaccine side effects or anything and there it was like it was like throwing spaghetti against teflon it just you know slips right off like just does not compute they right? committed too much to, exactly to, the, to it psychologically mentally they were in and and as you say when you when you take away those pillars and you say no actually you were misled your trust in various aspects of the system that were telling you that were basically communicating the crowd message to you was misplaced that trust was betrayed. Mm. The things you were told were good for the country were actually very much not to the good of the country. That's that's a huge shock. And and you have to then rebuild your sense of what is reality and who can I trust and who am I, right? And that, that really is a long, it's a huge amount of work and particularly for those people who are you know, older and, and more experienced and those who have also committed more strongly, 
it, I, I, honestly, I expect a few people to turf themselves off of off buildings. I mean, yeah, I, me I'm too. Really I, I genuinely do. Yeah, yeah, I genuinely do. And it's not. And if we take this out to its logical conclusion, is that it's not going to end at my government was incorrect with COVID. It's the entire Western media structure is essentially a propaganda machine, exactly. right? Exactly. It can be bought. Yep, it can be bought huge. by money and power. It's huge. It's exactly. And and it's exactly the reason why I love doing these podcasts, Nick. And yeah. thank you again for having me on. Because, Anytime. you know, these these independent media channels, such as yours, such as a number of other ones in Australia that have popped up, you know, the Discernible podcast by Matt Wong. Um, everybody and his brother can now have a podcast if yeah. they want to. And that's, I, I think, been a great blessing during this time. It's been something um, amazing to see, the energy that people will put towards trying to get a different message out. So the, the curation and dissemination of truth, you know, information, quote unquote truth, um, really is being more democratized organically mm. um, in the last year or so. I've really seen that. Um, and, and for the last couple of years, but in the last year, there's really some traction that's, that's, that's being gotten by those kinds of channels. And, and inevitably, the groups and channels that have been complicit in these and basically, I think there are crimes that have been um, perpetrated during the COVID period are going to be seen less and less as valid sources and more and more as simply puppets, which they are. I mean, they are absolutely purchasable. Um, you yeah, know, a politician yeah. or a company can purchase messages, right? That's what happens. And so to, to recognize that, we need to teach that to our kids. We don't just need to recognize it ourselves. So I, I see the process of rebuilding and, and reckoning with the modern social ills that we now have to have to figure out ways to improve on. That's going to be a process that lasts years, right? We're going to have five to ten years of, of of thinking about how we can do stuff better, and then another five to ten years of trying to implement those solutions. Do you feel a sense of um, light come, starting to come through a little bit, like in, in it, even if it's just starting to kind of work its way through crevices? Yeah. I mean, I have felt that way for probably a year and a half yeah. anyway, right? Um, I mean, a light is in not just COVID, yeah. but human consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the places that I've gone um, for real inspiration and that I've just been so pleased and so proud to be part of is the Brownstone Institute website. So Brownstone Institute is the publisher of my book with Paul Friders and Michael Baker called The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. And if you go to brownstone.org, you can see uh, their vast array now of articles, blogs, freely uh, downloadable, mm. freely readable on various aspects of the COVID period and also what we should do going forward. So Paul and Michael and I have blogged many times. We have one coming out pretty soon um, about this uh, Desmet idea of mass formation psychosis and yeah. sort of our take on that, basically, um, and including ideas about how to go forward that have been written in the great COVID panic, but we were able to have a, a longer form exposition of those on the Brownstone website. And Brownstone's been an amazing um, source of, of just, again, alternative uh, opinions from people, not just in economics, but in medicine, in um, the legal theory, history, sociology, morality, and they came from nothing. Brownstone didn't exist in May 2021 when I sent the manuscript for the Great COVID Panic in draft form to Jeffrey Tucker, who I knew to be a sensible voice on COVID because he'd been publishing reasonably you know, sensible stuff since about February Sorry, who's Jeffrey Tucker again? He was just a staff writer at the um, American Institute for Economic Research. That's how right. I knew him, right? He had actually written many books previously, and he'd been quite active. He's a kind of a libertarian thinker, I would I would say, would be the best way to describe him. And So far right? Uh, I, no, not even. Like, no, I mean, I, that's what they call that's them. That's what they call, yeah, I don't know. Nazi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
He's, he, I mean, I've met him in person now. I, I did fly over earlier this year to be part of a scientific retreat that, that he oh, organized nice. for brownstone people. And, and Paul was there and Martin Kuldorf and Jay Bhattacharya and uh, Naomi Wolf was there, a bunch of other people. And She's look, been busy, hasn't she? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bodies of others and everything else. I mean, just so much going on. Um, but, I mean, he is a, a lovely, lovely, generous, good-hearted, warm-hearted person. And so you know, so much not oriented towards command and control, right? In that sense, he is a classic libertarian. He actually probably is a, you know, person who would prefer anarchy than anything. Um, so he really does, he just hands off anybody else's choice kind of thing. That's, yeah. that's his philosophy. But anyway, he built this from nothing. And when I sent him the manuscript in May 2021, he he stayed up all night reading it, he told me later, and came back to me saying, who is publishing this? And I, and I told him, honestly, the truth, which was we were planning to self-publish because we didn't think any publisher would, you know, take on this book with, a, you know, any sort of confidence. And mm. we were just thinking, well, we'll you know, have it printed in some cheap old place in Thailand or something. And he said, no, 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 but I must publish this book. And at the time, Brownstone didn't exist. So we were like, well, how are you going to publish this? You know, you're just a staff writer at the at the at this institute, this existing um, American Institute for Economic Research. And he said, well, I'm planning to start my own. And then we had, you know, a roller coaster ride for eight weeks or so. Will you or will you not get enough money to actually do the publishing? Finally, it was the answer was yes, and they came out a month after we gave them the final manuscript. The, pub, the book was published, which mm. was amazing turnaround time. So that was September 2021, and from then, Brownstone has just grown incredibly well and gotten lots of private donors, and and still is a, a shoestring operation. It's basically Jeffrey plus one or two little part-time helpers, and just a whole huge number of volunteer writers, including myself and my co-authors, but also people from from all across. Uh, the spectrum of professions and they've just had enough money to start a Brownstone Fellows program which is kind of like a I don't know a refuge I suppose for thinkers who have been outcast by the <laughs> mainstream right and who are, yeah, who are yeah. wanting support to continue to write their thoughts and that's so great it's wonderful a bit like um, you know Toby Young mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. got his free speech lockdown skeptics thing. lockdown skeptics that's it. I didn't know until recently that of course Toby Young is um what's the movie how to how to annoy people and lose jobs or something oh how to how to lose friends and, and alienate, alienate people, people. brilliant <laughs> movie he was played by simon Pegg. oh right okay and his dad is an academic who wrote the rise of meritocracy oh i didn't know that okay well there we go yeah all sorts of interesting connections very there. interesting book about uh iq mm-hmm. and how America in particular essentially has been monetizing people's intelligence. Mm-hmm. So they just take them all from Harvard, Yale, all the top, do- and then they put them into Silicon Valley or banks. Mm-hmm. But then there's another flip side to that uh, when I interviewed Charles Murray. And it's that, you know, his story was, this is about... Um, That was the bell curve. I think it's called, he wrote the bell curve, yeah, yeah. 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 But he's talking about affirmative action, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he, this is, he gave one example of how affirmative action hurts black kids. Yep. He said, you might be a black kid with a really good IQ, solid IQ, you know, one, one, high 130s, mm-hmm. and you could be a really good engineer. So you go to a normal college, become a great engineer. But because of affirmative action, they send you to Yale mm-hmm. or to MIT. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's guys with 148, 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it leaves these kids 
Sure. Well, it's very Devastated. interesting. I mean, the affirmative action debate for me is personal because my mother was the first affirmative action officer at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh back in 1969. Wow. And she was given the job of chairing the uh, what they called the Committee on the Status and Needs of Women. So it was focused mainly on the gender divide. And at that time, the administration was truly interested in figuring out whether there were pockets of pay discrimination or pay gaps in, for similar work by gender um, that existed anywhere in the university. They genuinely wanted to correct those if, if it was... And it, it hadn't sort of you know, encroached on or enveloped all ideology at the university. It was more like an outgrowth of the of the civil rights movement saying, hey, yeah, I guess we probably should. And, you know, now we have the pill. So women are you know, sort of freer in some sense to pursue their own interests more so than the interests of the family. And yeah, we would, you know, we don't really feel good about paying them less for the same work. And we recognize women are doing a good job. Like it was just sensible stuff. It wasn't, you know, it hadn't really overtaken people's identity or, you know, the stuff that we see Common today. Common sense. Common sense. Exactly. So at her time, women... What do you mean? What do you mean? I can't park in that. I've got to park yeah. around the block. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Common sense. Exactly like that, right? Um, and and you know, my mother was very much a classic feminist. You know, women are people. That's the end of it, right? And that's always been sort of my attitude as well. Like I'm a person. Uh, you're a person. Like yeah. the main thing about us is we are people. That's that's the key thing. That's our identity in some sense. Our number one identity. And my identity as a woman is probably I don't know. It's dozens of labels down, right? It's just not something that's super important to me. But that has really changed. The culture has changed so much since she was in that role. And so she and I would have these conversations about affirmative action. And she was like, yeah, you know, it's sort of an attempt to try to, you know, give opportunities to people who were for a long time not able to access them. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, at a certain point, you hope that the society gets to a, pl a place where we no longer need to have those kinds of discussions because we've kind of redressed it. Um, I think if she were alive today, she would be quite dismayed about the direction in which those kinds of arguments have been taken. Yeah, I think that uh, Look, my attitude towards it is that you let the it's better to, to wait for the super intelligent unbelievable physicist who happens to be a girl mm -hmm. to go and knock on that door and go give me a job mm -hmm. the minute someone says well no actually you're a woman <laughs> then you go well fuck off yeah yeah let's yeah, let's yeah. start something yeah, but not yeah. like pushing women into stem you oh know? i know that whole thing i want to have a kid no you don't Totally. I, I mean, it was interesting. I actually uh, flew here yesterday from Perth where we had um, the 2022 edition of the PhD conference in economics and business, which brings together top PhD students in econ and business from around Australia, matches them with established scholars and gives them a chance to interact and, and get comments on their work. And the paper that got the best paper award was actually about this issue. It was using Greek data, and it was uh, supervised by a, a, a professor at UQ, or a, a senior lecturer, I guess she is, at UQ. And they had gone and collected data on girls and boys in Greek high schools and had asked when the top kid, the top performer in the classroom is a boy versus a girl, does that influence the selection, the subject selection, and the performance of the other girls and boys in the classroom? With the idea being, if the girls see a girl being the top, the top kid and getting the accolades associated with that, interacting with the teacher, helping the teacher out, does that mean the girls are going to go more into STEM, for example? Right. Um, and because there is this idea about role models, you know, is it important to have role models? And what was interesting in that paper, and I think one of the reasons it got the best paper award, apart from amazing data and great presentation, is that they found a difference by gender. For boys, it didn't matter who the top kid was. The boys just did their thing. They just went into whatever they were going to go into. They performed as they were going to perform. For girls, it made a 
difference. So having a girl as the, the top kid and seeing that role model made a difference. To me, what that says is that girls are, at least in that culture, are being raised to think of themselves as defined by their gender more so than boys are. So there is a difference in the way that they, they then conceive of Definitely. what they can do based on their gender. And I never had that. I, I consider that kind of, I mean, from my background, that would have been like baggage, unnecessary baggage. Like, why yeah. does it matter what gender you are? Wasn't Just do there. what's good, right? So for me, it wasn't there, but maybe in Greece it is. Right? And that, that was my best interpretation of those results. And I thought it was the best evidence really that I've seen in a developed country for a, a real impact that it's having on kids' choices. Because generally speaking, I look at the, the gap in STEM and I just say, well, sure, women just don't want to go into those jobs as much, right? Like maybe they just doesn't suit them as well. They don't like it. It's more lonely. It's it's less, uh, you know, oriented towards people and interactions. Yeah, it's not it a is. bad thing that you don't want to go into STEM. Yeah, exactly. Like there are plenty of other serious hours. really good subjects, right? Like why not do the other things? Leave it to the nerds. Yeah, exactly. Or just people who want to devote that kind of amazing amounts of time and yeah, effort yeah. away from, you know, because some women, a lot of women, I certainly wanted to spend time having kids too, because like that's important to me, you know? And probably yeah. important to a lot of women probably important to a lot of men too but you know maybe on average more so to women i mean you know there's all sorts of reasons why this i think just so. be individual choice right yeah. i think i think so and also they're being raised in environments now where gender has become um obviously has become um ideological right yeah, so they're being told almost that they're oppressed when they're born exactly the victimhood mentality so, vi it's victim so disempowering oh. it, it's it's a really cruel yep. technique to do yep and it's really it's actually dehumanizing and because it, totally it takes away the agency from the group that you're allegedly saying you're trying to protect and and i see so much of that woke ideology as being essentially a dominance attempt you know you you can't say this to me because you're gonna trigger me or whatever and that's going to be considered your fault right rather than let's all just try the best we can and do what we can and 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 focus our energies on something other than our sexual identity or our you know our gender identity or whatever other identity because honestly that's what you think about and you sort that stuff out when you're 10 11 12 years old whatever and then you move on to become an of, adult yeah 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 <laughs> you kind of don't even sort it out it just sorts itself out it sorts itself out yeah it starts to be sorted out until people age, right? teachers and governments start mm -hmm. getting in the manipulating you know, it yeah, uh -huh. teaching kids about this stuff and it's all got a bit crazy but let's talk about um mass formation psychosis and yeah get into the juicy stuff <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this was for me this was the thing the crowd formation was there, the thing sorry the reason i bring yeah, that yeah, up yeah, is go. because i hope that we'll be able to demonstrate maybe we won't but i think we will that mass formation psychosis is applicable to many things so. <laughs> indeed in yeah. smaller amounts maybe sure well it certainly has happened in the past i think it has not happened on the scale that we've seen during covid in my lifetime, and that's one of the reasons I didn't pick it. I, I was not I was not expecting that the fear that was palpable in March and April 2020 would translate into the formation of these crowds. But that kind of fear has happened in the past in human society. So in my country of birth, the U.S., the witch hunts were essentially powered by a crowd which had been possessed. The people had been possessed by fear. Fear of you know why why are we losing these why are these crops having these weird problems why are things disappearing <laughs> burn them exactly well because you get you get enough people afraid enough and they talk to each other and there's like a contagion of fear yeah. 
and then you hit upon something and in this case it was possessed women right um and which like, by the oh. way is <laughs> there's an argument for that <laughs> <laughs> indeed as for possessed men i would say um but they, you know they're, oh, they're sort of, they hit upon that and they just think oh this is the answer right and it doesn't matter anymore after a certain point that there's no connection between that supposed answer and the outcome you want which is less of the weird stuff happening with the crops or whatever right it's like there's no connection (laughs) there but it doesn't matter after a certain point you're just obsessed about that one thing and you just go for broke on that one thing and then you end up killing your fellow man right so so that has happened before but i had not seen it and i didn't pick it i don't know of any thinker in the COVID era who actually picked that this was happening early on, like March, April, May. Of I'm on record. I'm on record, mate. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I knew it straight away. Because, Talking about crowds. Yeah. Because the reason I picked it was I've been looking into this. I didn't have a, a theory for it to go mm. off. Mm. So when I started seeing what Desmond was doing and then you guys, mm. a lot of stuff started to make sense. Like I could say, okay, it's being done. Mm-hmm. In the ac- academic world here, mm-hmm. it matches some of the yeah. things I've seen and observed. Yeah. And for me, it started with the mass shootings in America. Oh, yeah. Real events, don't, of course, right? However, they always followed the same pattern, right? So could you think of anything more horrendous than 50, 51 slaughtered. kids getting slaughtered? Yeah. You can't. So the media captures that yep. and then pumps it out around the globe 24-7, all of a sudden, everyone's got an opinion on gun control. Yes, exactly. And the next minute, the Democrats are calling for gun control. Yep, yep. So so I was watching these little things, right? And then when that New Zealand one happened, mm, I was yeah, like, this quite, is getting yeah, yeah, very yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. And, tra- and horrifically tragic, of but course. very weird. And by the time... Wuhan came around mm. I was staying at my folks and I said this is bullshit <laughs> how do you know how, because exactly. look what's happened there's six unverified cameras iPhone footage that the western world is now basing its entire fear off Sure. I mean, that was, it was clear that it was completely nonsensical when it started, and that's why those of us who spoke out did, right? But, and it was clear that everybody was possessed by fear and that decisions were being made in fear. The thing that I didn't pick was that that would coalesce people into a crowd and that that crowd would perpetuate the madness for another two years, right? That's what I didn't pick until mid-2020. Mm. And, and that's part of what made us start writing The Great COVID Panic, which we started in like October or November of 2020 because my co-authors and I had been writing and thinking and speaking about all these issues and we just thought why is nobody actually you know we've got to just start writing this stuff down into a coalesced full coherent story including crowds so we have a chapter on crowds in the book and and we do have some points of difference with Matthias Desmet so Desmet calls it me mass, too, me transformation too. psychosis yeah. right we the first thing I will say is we agree with a lot of what he says. We agree that the, the and he says himself in his writings that he didn't pick it until, yeah. I don't know, July or August or something of 2020 either. Um, Psychosis is a, you're getting into a technical word within indeed. the psychiatric industry there, which is, makes That's it right. difficult, right? So the first thing I, where we disagree is that label, which implies that it's a mental illness. When in reality, first of all, it's happened in the past many times to sort of everyday Joes, not just in COVID, but every place else. But also the scale of the caps, capture is such that you basically then are implying that 70 or 80% of the Western world is psychotic. 
during this period. And I, it's not it's not a mental illness. It is a normal part of human activity. No, because they, they could function in other ways throughout their absolutely. life, right? Absolutely. They could absolutely function. And, and even more than that, it's just a natural thing that happens. I mean, I, I take issue with a lot of the... Um, you know, the medicalization and the this, the general problematization that psychology brings to the human condition um, with my mother being a psychologist. So I feel I have a little bit of a, of a leg to stand on there. But it's all know, it's it's it can be valuable, but it's all theoretical. It's theoretical, but it's also, you know, let's look at this person and this or this interaction and let's find out what the problems are rather than let's create an image of health and move towards that, right? So there's a kind of reactiveness in a lot of the ways that... Which is my argument, know, is, sorry, yeah. for um, euthanasia and abortion as well, is like, mm. okay, there's going to be some exceptions, in, right, blah, blah, blah. But how about we move towards a world where people... Uh, just feel elated that they're having a child. Yeah, or but sorry to interrupt. Go no, ahead. No, so it's but this is an interesting thing because it's. I think it applies to many areas of life. You envision the world you would like, or if you are an artist, the, the the piece you would like to create, or the experience you would like to have. You envision that and you move towards that, rather than reactively moving away from things you see as somehow unhealthy or bad or you know whatever. And and that was that actually characterized our reaction to COVID as well quite a lot, right? It was a lot of you know stay away from the virus, don't do this, don't do that rather than do these things yeah. like you know get exercise eat healthy be with your friends totally right and have some vitamin d you know take actions and the same thing has, is a problem in the woke area as well because you're told what you can't do don't say this don't say that um you know don't don't fascism you know have this opinion don't even don't even think about that area but in fact we could empower people much more by saying oh no here are the things you can do that are actually feasibly linked to the outcomes that you want, which we've envisioned in this picture of health. So, you know, that that, that notion of we can we can move towards health, I think, is, is a, it's a, a blind spot in a lot of psychology these days. But I do I see some signs that maybe it's starting to change and be oriented more towards uh, sort of positive psychology and, and promotion of function instead of identification of dysfunction. But anyway... The notion of medicalizing the crowd, I think, is something you know we, we don't really align with Desmet on. But also this idea that the reason why the crowds formed was that there was this nonspecific anxiety floating around to do with modernity, right? Because Enlightenment ideals force us to other other people, you know, to, to dehumanize them in a sense and think about them. And, and we are also, you know, have this very, um, uh, at this attitude that we can manipulate our environment mechanistically and, mm. you know, get away from nature and all these things are creating incredible loneliness and blah, blah, blah. The thing is, if you actually confront that theory with data about who got captured. What's that theory, sorry? This is Desmet's idea that that a lot of the reason why we went into this uh, But the specifically crowd, um, when he says the free-floating anxiety. Yes. What's he... What's he you said um, Moderna. So you're talking modernity. about... Modernity. Modernity. So you're talking about Moderna. I've just got Not vaccines Moderna. on yeah. my mind. Have yeah, you had so, the... Get your vax. Yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly. Um, get the vax. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yes, nothing to do with Moderna, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, no, he 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 basically puts the finger of blame on modernity as as having caused some of this free floating anxiety. Right? People have they don't have a, any meaning in their lives. They're not close uh, to nature. We're too we're too you know we're we're captured see, with yeah. this enlightenment, and the enlightenment has led us down this path to this atomistic right, lonely right. existence. Right? But if you look at who actually in the world was captured by the COVID narrative and the madness and joined the crowds is plenty of people who actually are have quite warm social relations most of south america central america got captured um you know many places in sub-saharan africa got captured so there you know there wasn't really the lineup of those kinds of i guess signals of modernity that he is blaming and the onset of the crowd 
So we basically think it's just, it's liable to happen when you have this fear that sweeps along around a whole society or around the world in the case of COVID because of modern media that then can, can make people very vulnerable to the formation of a crowd and to the, uh, to the perpetuation of whatever that obsession is and the reactions that have been stipulated against it. And there were a few exceptions, but they were not those that were somehow missing elements of modernity. So mm. Sweden is perfect, you know, has elements of modernity as well. And actually, they weren't really that lonely anyway. Neither were the Danes, neither were a lot of other places in Northern Europe. I agree. So he was talking things like, I'm just guessing, low church attendance, Mm. these sorts of things, like traditionalism as well is is lacking. Yep. Low low levels of community uh, identification and support, sort of lower quality social relations. I mean, it is true that those those are features of some of the Western countries that were captured. That's true. You you might be able to argue that the West is weak and Mm. those things are present in in a weak West Mm. and therefore it was more susceptible to um, tyrannical... But it doesn't well, explain the mass formation. Yeah, and, and, and look at China. I mean, look at them locking oh, down Beijing and Shanghai beat, and all my gosh, those poor right? bastards. They're absolutely shooting themselves in the other foot right now, right? Hugely. Poor bastards. Hugely. I know. It's awful. Humanitarian catastrophe happening. And over Albanese's there. over there. I'm not labor or liberal, you know that, but yeah. Albanese's over there sh- grinning like a schoolboy, shaking the hands of po- probably the worst communist dictator on the planet right yeah. now. Yeah, well, you know, economics speaks, right? We got to sell our stuff to somebody, we gotta, you know, digging that out of the ground, got to go somewhere. So, and from an economic perspective, it does make sense for us to trade with them, but do we want to be cozying up to them politically? Um, you know, I, I think that's another, and it's I'm a not nuanced a argument there that needs to happen that no one's going to have that. Absolutely. We and keep walking into the same traps. I know. And people think about these things in binary fashion, like either you're pro China or you're anti China. Well, you know, China, the reality is it's a huge country. It's right on our doorstep. It buys our stuff. Right. Yeah. But also it's not Western and the Yanks, frankly, are kind of have been our best friends for many decades and they are the biggest bullies on the block still. And for us as a tiny little Western country in the middle of Asia, not to align with them seems to me very politically unbelievable risky, right? so you know you have to have that kind of nuanced nuanced argument and and be proud of yourself as a nation that's the other thing that's just missing from this whole you know the, the debate about what should australia do we need to be focused on what's good for australia and the australian people rather than what is politically expedient what's gonna fly that that kind of thing the optics you know and that's why i've got all the trump <laughs> flags because trump brought back <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ex- excuse me okay excuse excuse me <laughs> We will make America safe again. We will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. You're gonna make me fall off my seat. But but in all serious in all seriousness, and I have a, a guy on my show a lot. He's a he's been a um he's had professorial positions at both Duke and UPenn. He was about to get cancelled mm-hmm. and got out of UPenn at the last minute. He's wow. a, he's a philosophy professor oh you should link him up with brownstone institute maybe uh he would be interested in the fellowship johnny you'll be he listens to these so Mm. johnny look at johnny anomalies his name and he was taught you know we've been podcasting since i met him very kind of per chance because i was looking for someone to comment on the election in 2020 oh yeah when it was dispute and no one would go near it <laughs> and they were like oh someone at, uh, that i know at a- acu in the philosophy department said you should get in touch with this american guy johnny anomaly right. <laughs> and he's like bang up for it straight That's great. so That's we've been so good. we've been talking about all the things we've said about russia and all that rubbish and the democrat has come true like it's just a vindication process yeah but he made a good point which was that 
people need flags and they need anthems and they need because look what happens when it, it it's being dissolved now by yeah. globalism. Yeah, and it's well, it's terrible. Even, I mean, I would even say instead of globalism, I would just say divisive ideologies in general. We have so many ideologies these days that that essentially push people apart from each other. A lot of the woke stuff pushes men apart from women. A lot of the climate change stuff pushes individuals against you know a, a, away from other individuals because any action you take is potentially hurting the planet and therefore yes. hurting everybody. COVID, the whole ideology around you know you are a viral vector pushes you away from your fellow man right Does. so there's so much division and again going back to what we talked about earlier my attitude has always been look we are all people first and foremost we are in this together trying to make a better world for ourselves we cannot be canceling each other and and be allow ourselves to indulge in this petty division based on something you can't even touch and feel I, and people have different opinions they have different beliefs they have different perspectives and we should welcome that that is something to be celebrated to have a, a a culture and a society where that kind of diversity can flourish is a marker of health. And we need to get back to that. If we want to make um, Australia great again, that's where we need to go is to, to welcome more diverse views and, and have respectful conversations and, and understand that diversity is where you get growth actually, mm. right? If you, if you diversity, yeah, because what, type, what type of diversity of, of ideas, perspectives, beliefs. Yeah. So I mean, very different from the diversity oh, that's not being the pushed around stuff, not, as in not, we need to get one black person, oh one Asian. Oh my gosh. That's rubbish. But we kept getting told it's our greatest strength. Well, and the thing is, I have, you know, so many of these, whatever they are, uh, you know, uh, bureaucratic departments charged with, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion, they they essentially achieve the opposite of what we really need. There is a recognition that we need need more diversity in some, there's a kernel of that recognition in some of these departments, but it gets boiled down and, 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 uh, you know, shoehorn in to these demographic descriptors, Mm. which don't give you anything. You know, if you have a whole bunch of different colored people in a room and they all think the same way, you're not harnessing the diversity of your population to solve the problems that are facing that group. It's just not happening, right? You just got a whole bunch of people who basically are from the same standpoint, the same mindset, and they'll be very stupid because you just don't have any innovation potential there. So that's the thing. When I say you, you need diversity, you need people who have a minority opinion because every innovation at some point was a minority opinion. And innovation is ultimately where you get growth from. So if you stamp out the minority opinion, you're stamping out growth. Definitely, and that's what you find in state government administrative roles. <laughs> I'll just uh, turn that dishwasher off. Hold that oh, thought. Oh, sure. <laughs> you want a water? Are you okay? No, I'm fine. Thanks. You're a good girl. Yes, I know. You're a good girl. I know. You're a good dog. Yeah, so let's hit that climate change point you were just... And those yeah, sure. <coughs> excuse me, those things. Because... Excuse me. I think that that's where my... The theory I was trying to develop throughout the last five to ten years fits in um i was seeing things like climate change and love is love like now we would call crowd formations Mm, mm. and when it really hit me was with george floyd Mm, mm -hmm. that was one giant crowd formation Mm, around black mm. white white people are racist Mm -hmm, yeah do you think that could be applied 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's they're, they're not as powerful those crowds, and they no. they've dissipated more quickly, uh, and they kind of they just come and go a bit more, yeah. and and they they haven't really taken over our whole lives the way that COVID did. Um, and part of the reason for that is there just isn't as much money to be made on those ideologies, right? Not enough um, fear either. Like. And there's not enough fear. The climate change area is the area that my co-authors and I think is probably most likely where the COVID crowds will end up moving in order to keep the crowd alive. Because one of the things about a crowd Definitely. is it, it wants to keep itself alive. Because there, there are benefits to being in a crowd, right? It's the reason organism, why people right? do this, it's an organism. It is a meso-level organism that has an incentive to continue to provide its uh, its sort of services to its members. And, and that service is very, very powerfully positive to a lot of people. They like to be surrounded by others who all think the same way about something. They all agree that, you know, this is the right way to do things. There's a security and a, a sense of power in that kind of position. And, and that's why it's so seductive. And so it wants to keep going. And the people in the crowd want to keep going. They want to find the next thing that will keep them adhering to each other and connected in that way. And climate change, if you can, if you can generate enough existential fear, you know, about, oh, my gosh, the world is going to end, then, you know, that is a potential uh, ideological direction where that crowd could go. And, and so that's, you know, that is one possibility. There are other ones, but um, I think that's probably the leading contender for where the COVID crowds are going to go next. It's very easy to generate that fear as well because yeah, all you need is the mainstream media to just, when I say the main, the legacy media, the corporate media, whatever yep. you want to call it, the ones that run the same narrative throughout. Yep. The, the Anti-vaxxers in and they're just, like, <laughs> they're just pumping that out or yeah. whatever, yep. whatever, whatever their angle is from their corporate interests above them that are mm, yeah. telling them what to say. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the the climate change one is is going to be a little harder to run than the COVID uh, fear fear propaganda was to run because it doesn't hit people where they live, at least for most of the people in the West. And COVID really does because you think, oh, I, I have a you know a human individual human body that could sicken and die from this. I have children, I have parents who could sicken and die from this, right? And oh my gosh, it's on our shores, and here it comes. Whereas with climate change particularly in a place like Australia, which is basically clean and, you know, yeah, we have some bushfires and some floods and stuff like that, but, you know, it's kind of once in a while, there's a bit of amnesia about it and there isn't really that, that uh, focused fear that is really personalized that was there in the case of COVID. So I think it's, you know, that'll be a, a saving not yet. grace in some, in some sense. Yeah, not yet, exactly. Not Easy yet. to do though, don't you think? Well, like, you, have to, you have to figure out what is the mechanism going to be? What are you going to do? What are you going to... We're the, all going to die. Yeah, but that's just a statement, right? I mean, there have been doomsdayers predictions. No, but for, in unison, you know, there's, they start showing... Because natural disasters happen every day all over the place. Mm. If they just dedicate their broadcasts to every single natural disaster, they make it look, right, like... Oh my God, yeah. we're all going to yeah. die. <laughs> and that would be the ultimate. Yeah. Um, Maybe, but again, where what do you want us to do? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what so, can we do? Uh, you can yep. pay us a tax every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Done. there is there is some money that can be earned that way for sure. And that's, of course, you know, what has been driving so much of the COVID stuff too is the money and the power, right? And people also, that's another, you know, aspect that just people, if they don't recognize it initially and then they do, they can just be shocked. I mean, really, truly psychologically shocked yes. that, that this is what's actually been driving and it really hasn't been about public health promotion. Um, and in the case of the climate change stuff, it does seem to be happening at a kind of supranatural uh, national level. So the UN or the other international kind of bodies trying to say, oh, yes, we all must do X. And we know that the UN isn't typically particularly powerful. Like it doesn't ultimately... 
run shows inside countries and all politics is local to a certain extent. So local politicians will be bound by the incentives in their individual states. So again, there's a little less uh, power to that ideology and to the mechanism of fear propagation, I think, in the case of climate change. But yeah, that's the sort of thing I worry about. So yeah, I mean... I think it'll uh, fail though. I, well, I think so. And I think it will fail more dramatically and more quickly the more we can actually get alternative views out there and we can have these discussions where people aren't canceled. Uh, and so, you know, I would yeah. love for the Brisbane Dialogues to do another climate change uh, discussion. They did do one, but it wasn't quite as diverse in terms of views uh, as one might like. But I think what know, was that called? Uh, I don't remember. It was it was something it was pretty identifiable about climate change. And it would have been a few months ago, I think. And it was in Brisbane. Mm, I'll tell yes. you what, I'm from we're in we're in Brisbane right now. And I can tell you any any person, any Brisbaneite. If they've got a problem with the weather, they should shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> it's just now it's like so awesome. 30 and sunny, 30 uh, yeah. and sunny. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. I had a lovely run this morning along the river. I love this city. I love coming up here. It feels like a vacation every time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But let's get, so this, I think it will fail because this is climate change, mm. because we've had COVID <laughs> yeah. and after COVID now. These public scientists are among the least trusted human beings on the planet. I, I hope They that weren't that's ju- true. just a little bit wrong. They were fundamentally wrong about on basically every aspect. Yeah. yeah, I know. But that's what you and I would say now. The question is really how many people have woken up. I was just in WA, as we said, and I spoke on the radio there, ABC Perth, uh, in the morning on a morning show. And the amount of vitriolic response to what I was saying, which was just, you know, the stuff I normally say about COVID. You know, we made mistakes. Um, this was not the way we should have handled it. There were plenty of other things we could have done. We would have had much less loss. You know, I have this new book with a reasonably new book with Sanjeev Sablok called Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good, which is a cost-benefit analysis Where's of that available Australian's at? lockdowns. Uh, it is at Connor Court Press. So you can go to the Connor Court Press. C-O-N-N-O-R Court. Yeah, yep. publishing. Yep, and and so that, that one. that's basically just tabulating the losses that we have inflicted on ourselves because of the lockdown policies. We find that basically the headline result is that lockdowns were 68 times as expensive as they could possibly have delivered in benefits in terms of human well-being, which is, I think, what we should be caring about, right? I mean, that's the main thing we're trying to go for is human flourishing. But despite the You'd fact that so. I, you know, I was just stating the things that I've, I've been stating for, you know, two years, but the amount of emotion coming back, I mean, oh, you know, why do you give this crackpot a platform? And she's an economist, not a health scientist. Why is she giving us health advice? And is she a Trump supporter? And, you know, just all this stuff. And but you just look the at thing that is, and think, Gigi, people are not there. People are not ready to see that their authority figures have lied. That, to that them. They are. The people that comment online, let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> these are some of the biggest losers ever but also <laughs> you're not actually engaging what these idiots don't realize rocky down my dog is currently <laughs> she's very more, cute she's getting <coughs> is that they're not standing before you going mm. presenting it like oh, i think you should do mm. you're, you're just getting some really whack thoughts that are kicking around in their head yeah and then they want to say that online um, i hope that that's i hope you're i right. think most I hope you're people right, look, i seriously do look i'm seeing it I, f- I feel energies more so than. Mm-hmm. Oh, I sound like a hippie now. <laughs> <laughs> go and get me. Ga- go and get my air, gun. Man. It's there in the air. Go and get my gun and the Confederate flag. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I did sense that a bit last night at the event here, the, the How Do We Manage the Next Pandemic event that the Brisbane Dialogues people held. I mean, every time I would speak almost, I would get claps from the audience um, on, on, you know, just very, just straight stuff, you know, like this was wrong. We, we made mistakes and this, you know, people were in a crowd and they, the expert advice was being generated by people who had the label expert on their forehead, but were actually either just captured by the crowd or just engaging in political uh, or economic opportunism. 
And so they weren't really yeah, acting yeah, as experts, yeah. right? Like that, the, that was not experts, right? <laughs> like the ones on the that went on Q and A. Yeah, that, yeah, that kind of thing. Total right? opportunism. Right? Opportunism plus. I, I want to get on TV. I, as I an genuinely expert. think some people were captured, like, and there was like, like an yeah, ignorance yeah. of what they were really doing because their minds just weren't operating anymore the way that they normally would. And so, you know, when I would say those things and people would clap. So there seemed to be definitely a, an appetite, shall we say, for hearing that kind of alternative view. But this is Brisbane, and that's a very kind of refined audience, I guess, who are interested in having this discussion, who would come to the event. So really, it's it's down to what is the mood of the people at the moment in Australia. And I, it's very mixed. I, I really, I wouldn't be able to make a call on it. And I haven't seen, I mean, I saw that vaccine uh, based survey where it was found that something, I don't know, like 30 or 40% of people who had the vax now regretted it. And none, not a single person who hadn't had it regretted that choice, right? So you see that sort of stuff and you think, okay, well, in, in relation to the vaccine, at least people are starting to maybe reevaluate what actually happened there. But in relation to the whole mess of policies, the whole gaggle, the whole parliament of policies, shall we yeah. say, right? Um, I, I just I just don't know what people think. It's it's difficult to know. I, I, I guess when I say I had, um, I, I felt an energy, it's, it's, it's just very subtle things like in the way people talk about it. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. more of yep. there's more derision in their voices. Yeah, they're yeah, mocking yeah. they're mocking the politicians, and well, that's look, that's a great start. That's so good, right? The humor is so good. It's a great start. I think I think I actually last night I actually brought up the meme that you may have seen where you know the trolley problem where the trolley's yeah. going and you know you're gonna hit like I don't know however many people who are tied to the tracks. Um, but you know you have to you have to pull this lever and you know you can make it just hit the one person and and that one person you know you're going to kill but you're going to avoid the other three other five or whatever well it's a differently done track so that you have all those people but when you pull the lever all that happens is the color of the trolley changes from blue to red right <laughs> <laughs> or back again red to blue right so you're not really doing anything and and that kind of cynicism about the political system and about you know the actual outcomes generated by the choices that have been made recently um, shall we say perhaps about COVID is a good sign. Um, I might know my son has written a musical about the COVID period, which is largely Brilliant. satirical. Right. Um, uh, I've heard your son's a very talented young man. Well, he, he likes to think so. Uh, I mean, I, I like the songs. I do like the songs, but you know, has he very, got a SoundCloud or something? Uh, or? well, actually the Brownstone Institute website put up one of his songs called flatten the curve. So you can, curve. you can go to, if you go to brownstone.org and you just search flatten the curve, um, I'll chuck it up too. Can, uh, yeah, you can find it. It's, I mean, it is. It's quite funny. I find, and he does all of the. He voices all of the parts. So you know, the, for the girls, he's in his falsetto. It's quite quite funny. Um, but you know, I, I do hope that there'll be more of that. There are organizations I know that are pushing for more mocking, more more humor to be developed, more art to be developed. Uh, you know, that that actually shows this period in in appropriate lights. Prime time for um, that. The yeah. people are ready to oh, laugh. I, I think they are. I think they are absolutely ready to laugh. I have been arguing for a dance party everywhere I go. I like tonight. And when I go to the Sunshine Coast to speak to these people, I really hope that they just give us at least half an hour just to let loose on the dance floor. I've been wanting to dance for, yeah, I don't know, how pricks band dancing. I know. Think about that. I know. Like, how, I know. Is this, band how can anyone not think this is a fascist regime? <laughs> it just blows my mind. I know, exactly. How comfortable have we gotten in the West? Oh, totally. To not understand totally. that locking citizens in, in a never-before-done, apart from the Chinese Communist Party who'd just done it, and, and not just that, but I mean, what about the ex-communist states, so, you know, Hungary or whatever, where they did prevent people from leaving? Yeah. And, and we prevented people from leaving for a long time. And we prevented people from coming back to Australia for a long time, months and months and months. It's why, it's why restrictment of movement is such a, uh, an attack on, on yep. a person's general yep. liberty and freedom. Totally. Well, born, so born to do, you know, 
to have that freedom. Exactly. I we, we were asked as the last question on the stage last night, if you could pick one thing to change, what would it be out of this whole you know mess of policies? What would you do differently next time? Or how could we change things? And um, I had to think for a second because I was like, well, are we talking about things that are actually achievable or just, you know, fairyland? Here's what I would like to do, like eliminate the crowd mentality uh, at that time. But I actually said, look, just have governments commit tomorrow to never closing borders, locking people in their homes and closing schools. Just commit. That's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. Right? I think it's got to be amongst us as the you know, this is why I love the United States because the Constitutional Republic, as a model, mm-hmm. is is really Plato's Republic. It's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it was set up, it was um, certainly a very different time with different, not just a different scale, but also different kinds of politicians. You know, we now have even in the U.S most politicians being career politicians. And that does change the dynamics quite a lot. There's a lot of money in politics and there is a, a, a great distance between the interests of the people as a whole and the interests of the people who are heading many of the bodies that make up the machinery of state. Definitely, and, yeah. and that is a problem, right? And so I feel like it's not, you know, I, I do love my country and I, I know my country of birth, Australia, I'm also a citizen here, but I love many things about the US, including that entrepreneurial attitude and the notion of, you know, we're just gonna, we're gonna try to do this and we're going to bloody well give it a good shot and we're not going to be ashamed of ourselves. There's no chip on the shoulder. Um, and the appreciation of diversity that you see, you saw that in New York when I was living there in the late nineties, that was New York is at its best was you come across anybody oh, in the street, right? You reckon America was at its best in the late nineties? I think that was almost the, 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 the best period to be there. I, I really, I felt so much like there was so much happiness and so much expectation of um, optimistic outcomes in the future, right? People felt good about what was was to come, right? The music was great. And people would just treat each other like human beings, right? Rather than representatives of this group or that group or this history or that culture or that religion. It's just, you know, you walk up to somebody on the street in New York and no matter what they look like, no matter what they're dressed as, no matter what accent they have, you just treat them like a human being and you're like, okay, what can we, can we learn from each other? Can we trade with each other? Can we benefit from each other, from interacting with each other? You know, that to me is, is beautiful. That's, that's what, you know, that's what we have as a potential as a species is to be able to combine our talents, our law, our knowledge, our affections, our, our inclinations, our perspectives with each other and create a better life for ourselves by working together. That's like, I don't know. I just, I just, it's so obvious to me that, and I guess maybe it's cause I was schooled in it, you know, that that was what we were going for as a species that, um, when I saw it in New York, I just thought, yep, yeah, that's, that's, this is right. This is what we are going for. And, and now in Australia, I don't feel that as much and it makes me sad. I'll tell you what else is beautiful is, 90, I went there in 1997, but I was only 13. My first overseas trip, I was always just obsessed with American culture growing up. Like <laughs> I had, I was a massive Bulls fan in the 90s, oh, yeah. had, like, had all the Jordan gear. Yeah. Um, I loved Seinfeld. I loved um, The Simpsons. Yeah. So mostly The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. So I went to America and it was just, I'll tell you the, the flip side of this. So. I'll get to that actually. What I'll do is I'll paint the picture of what New York was like as a 13 year old and then what 13 year olds are going through today. My face was basically just set to like shock, (laughs) you know, like big mouth open, just looking up at at sort of like all the bright buildings and holy crap, I'm in America. Yeah. Um, Then just buying like big red gum and like, you know, doing everything. It was just epic. Like everything was epic. Mm -hmm. And we went to all the, you know, we went to various sites and it was a one month trip all up. We drove from mm. Arizona, uh, sorry, from 
Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico. Yeah, mm-hmm. across to uh, Vegas, which mm-hmm. I've done a couple of times since. Um, beautiful. It's just the, the it country is, is just yeah. unbelievably stunning. Yeah. And it's got everything, right? Every kind of terrain. and. Yep. But yeah, driving through, just like eyes open going, wow, this is so cool. Now, a 13-year-old today is getting dealt all that rubbish that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I know. I, I mean, I, it's an attack. I, I feel it is. And it's an attack on on one of the most powerful forces that we have learned to create in human history, which is the, the ideology, the positive, healthy ideology of a nation state that is that knows what it is and knows where it's going and where it unites people and gives people a place to contribute to the growth of that society and a, and a respected place and a place where, you know, there, there can be creativity and innovation and all that and the freedoms that, that are just, you know, inalienable. Um, and literally, yeah, yeah, right. Literally. And you, I mean, even and that's the very important part of the, of the, of the, um, yeah. Bill of Rights. Yeah. Yes. Well, so it's, so it's interesting you bring that up because I've had conversations with lawyers here in Australia because I was really frustrated for months and months that the that the legal profession wasn't coming forward with some people to contribute to the resistance, basically. Mm. Like, where were the lawyers when our rights were being Good trampled, question, right? Yeah. yeah. I didn't think and, about that. Oh, my gosh. They were just they were just missing in action. And I finally did come across a few. And so, you know, Julian Gillespie is one of them. He's come out of retirement, actually, because he was so, you know, feeling that it was such a call to actually do something. And Peter Pham, uh, human rights lawyer, also in uh, Sydney. You put and, me in, sorry, you put me in touch with yeah. Mr. Gillespie. And I actually okay, emailed yeah. him and he was great. He yeah. just gave me... I think yeah. we spoke on the phone briefly. He's yep. uh, just what's his previous before he was uh, retired? He, he was he's, some, a, he's a QC. Yeah, he? he was some. Kind, yeah. I think it was a QC. He was a pretty high up guy. But he he was. She counsels the queen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You seen the castle? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. She what does that mean? Mean she counsels the queen? <laughs> yeah, he was a big deal. Charm. Yeah. That's a bit of charm. But I think you know it's interesting that somebody like that would come into the resistance party because he really doesn't have any skin in the game. Right? He's he's no longer trying to protect a particular corporation or a particular client or, you know, he's not sort of beholden to some moneyed interest. He's literally just doing this out of the goodness of his heart, I believe. And he's got some interesting ideas about how to, how to make the arguments and whatnot. And, you know, there have been legal cases against the mandates around the country. And generally speaking, they've fallen flat, right? We haven't gotten gotten through, partly because the judges are still captured, but also because some of the lawyers are just not... Did you say that corrupt? Together. <laughs> well, uh, captured. Okay. I'm, I'm using a, a slightly... Sorry, I thought you word. said corrupt. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> well, I like to, you know... I don't honestly. I don't know. I don't know in either. Those cases, and I'd like to put that on the record right yes. now. Yes, I mean, is it delusion or ne- is it? It's just a, neither Gigi or I believe that any Queensland judge <laughs> or lawyer is corrupt. Is, uh, go ahead. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we just don't know. But but I mean, the reality is we haven't seen decisions that have been in favour of human rights um, and uh, and and medical autonomy. And so these, but these two people, uh, you know, I've had conversations with them and just asked, look, what, you know, what can you draw upon? And it's not easy because we have not actually got, as you know, a bill of rights in this country. And we also, even though we are a signatory to the United Nations Charter of Human Rights, we have not domesticated that charter, which according to Ian Benson, who is a legal academic at, I think, ACU, um, is apparently something that makes a difference when you're trying to run a legal argument in the courts. If you haven't domesticated the human rights charter, then you can't really rely on that commitment that we've made just by signing it. So it doesn't really as mean much, anything. Right, and not as much at least. I mean, I, I don't well, know. Well, in this case, in COVID, so. in the case of in COVID, case it of didn't COVID. mean anything. Exactly, exactly. Well, also Queensland human COVID, rights, none of it meant anything. No. The other thing about COVID, a lot of people just didn't know whether 
they the, the fine that they were being slapped with was legal like does this something that i really have to pay or do i not have to pay mm. it what are my rights can i actually just step foot over the board what are they going to do shoot me if I, if I drive over the border, if I drive through that roadblock, what's going to happen? And is that legal? If they put me in jail, like, can I just say this is illegal? I, like, who made that law? Yeah. We just, it was a complete obfuscation of, you know, we had no idea what was going on in the space of rights. And I think the absence of a, of a Bill of Rights may have been a contributing factor there, but it's also just a general lack of appreciation for and, uh, and, and knowledge about the way that our civil society operates and what the rules are of the game and, and just the institutions and the, the give and take between the public sector and the private sector and the roles of people like the, the police or the military versus the judicial system and, you know, the health sector and just how our society works. A lot of students, a lot of kids these days just never learn about that stuff. They pick it up kind of as they go through life and they, and they never really learn anything about the political system or the economic system or, you know, how society is put together, including what is expected of the state versus what is expected of the individual and, uh, and you know what our common understandings are there because you know you need to have that in order to have a functioning society and the crisis of covid really brought out that a lot of people don't have a common understanding of that stuff in australia and they have it more in the u.s whether that's because yeah, of the existence absolutely. of the human rights that's what i was getting at rights. before yeah I'm, I'm not sure i mean it's partly the bill of rights that's why there, you but... made a point 100 uh, percent agree with what you just said mm. you made a point earlier that uh, you said we need to make sure government doesn't do that again. Yes. America, I believe, would be saying right now, we the people mm-hmm. need to make sure that never happens again. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the slight subtle difference, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. The we the people thing. But it's a big difference. And and this is something we've blogged about, my, my co-authors and I, on Brownstone Institute, is really talking about getting back to government by the people as you know more direct democracy basically as an antidote to the technocratic and bureaucratic overreach of this period that has been just generally swallowed whole by most Australians right I mean the compliance orientation of Australians has really come out during this period that cultural inclination to just follow the rules in crisis um, and you know you'll, you'll be mm. a larrikin when it's not really you know when things aren't on the line but when it gets down to the wire and, you know, you're feeling really stressed and there seems to be a big problem, you look to authority. That's just what Australians seem to do, right? And that yeah. is a big problem. That is a cultural... It's the cultural government's baggage. job to look after me. Exactly. That's a slow thing that's happened, I believe. You reckon? I, I think that slowly as government gets bigger and bigger mm. and more people start to get hired in mm. these administrative roles, which are the number one employment position in the world uh, in the world in, in, in the country yeah uh queensland has like 240 and and that's about to get raised again yeah. 240,000. and new south wales victoria has more than that yeah it creates a kind of a, a laziness and a cult and a sort of mm. a dependence on government and then yeah. slowly they start taking a little bit more control sure. but i think it happens i think to put a finer point on that that sort of control happens the the big think tank UN WHO levels they start implement like all of a sudden it's fucking Women's Day for the seventh time this year right <laughs> and why oh because the UN says it's, it is yeah 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 I mean I think it is partly habituation it's corporate like kind of communism that's slowly mm-hmm. taken its grip I think that's happened. Gradually, from probably the sixties, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there's definitely been an increase in the 
a degree to which um, power and money have been concentrated and the concentrations of those things provide an opportunity to influence the direction of societies right and and certainly with media as well helping with that and as we said at the beginning being purchasable um you know given out to the highest bidder so information is basically uh, at the behest of the highest bidder and that's that makes for a very uh lopsided system of information discovery and it makes for an information war essentially yes and and that is where modern wars are fought now is Correct, in the, in the yeah. information Absolutely. battlefield right um, so that's why citizen based media like this is so important and and you know i think we need to think more about how we get more citizens of all stripes and shades involved and all perspectives and all beliefs involved in in generating truth of what they think of as truth and disseminating those ideas so that we can actually talk about these things um, because that's one thing that's just sorely missing during this period is the ability to actually talk across the aisles and i think you know i have to go in five minutes but i think one of the things that would be really good to see more of is the uh as i say the appreciation of of alternative beliefs you know the idea that somebody you're talking with only deserves respect if they believe the same things that you believe that's really taken hold in in a lot of communities including a lot of universities to be honest these days and that's extremely dysfunctional you know diversity of beliefs is is something that has powered innovation and societies for you know most of human history it's that diversity that gives us new ideas and i like to say i don't care whether people believe that there are blue monkeys dancing on the ceiling whatever just tell me what your what your practical idea is right now about how we should solve this problem and it'll go in the mix yeah well i mean what you're describing is basically just normality ah, that's what i like to think yeah. and, and <laughs> it's because these corporate yeah communist snakes have had their slithering tentacles going over like all the world for since world war ii that yeah you're right but i think it needs to be broken up at the at the power structure and that's why i yeah. think elon musk's i don't have an opinion on the guy mm. i'm not a tesla driver i'm not scientifically uh gifted that way in any way mm. i just think that him purchasing twitter and then unlocking things like trump and project veritas yeah that's massive in I, the information world i agree i actually that's think what i'm interested in. I, I think it's it's a it's a good development on net i i agree with you i don't know everything about musk i think probably he's got some you know, I mean, like everybody who has a lot of power, it's dangerous, right? And so you don't know what he's become and, and how that's going to play out, right? But I do think that he is making the right noises. And I think taking some risks, hiring, I mean, firing a lot of people and then trying to reorient the company, that's what that's what entrepreneurs do. They take risks on things and they follow a vision. And I think he is doing that. That to my to my viewing, he in general seems to do what we were talking about before, set up a vision of what you want the world to be like or what you think is good for a society, move towards that. And, and the idea of free speech is fundamental in the U.S. It should be fundamental here, too. Um, and, and I hope that we, we do see some positive developments on, on that score because Twitter certainly is uh, one of the most egregious examples of, of uh, you know, locations of cancellation, denigration, bullying, pillorying, and, and the rest. So to have a bit of a recovery of that. If you want to read more about how that's happened in economics, by the way, I have a uh, paper out with Paul Freiders, one of my co-authors on The Great COVID Panic, called Hiding the Elephant, the Tragedy of COVID-19 Policy and its Economist Apologists, which is an IZA, IZA working paper. Um, and it basically goes through what happened in the Australian economics profession during COVID and how it basically failed the Australian people, uh, naming and shaming people right. as we go. So, Where's that uh, available at? Uh, just go to the IZA, IZA um, working paper series. You can Google that and just look for Hiding the Elephant. Okay. And also the books are The Great COVID Panic, What Happened Next, Why and What to Do Next. That's by Gigi as well as Michael Baker and Paul Friders. And Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve 
the greater good, a cost-benefit analysis of Australia's reaction to COVID-19. Gigi Foster, and how do you pronounce your co-author's name? That's with Sanjeev Sablok, who Sanjeev uh, he was an economist in the Victorian State Treasury for uh, a long time until mid-2020. He started to speak out against what was happening in Victoria, and they didn't like that very much. I so, bet they uh, didn't. They parted ways, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Thanks a lot for coming in and having a chat. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Nick, for having me. It's really always enjoyable to uh, have a chat. Right on. Oh. Good. Thank you. No worries. Thank you very much. I thought that covered a good amount of territory. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat there with Gigi Foster. If you want to get more stuff like that, including full-length interviews, articles, videos, all sorts of wonderful stuff, go and get yourself a subscription at nickholt.substack.com. nickholt.substack.com. The Nick Holt Podcast. I love you.